The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're studying tonight, um, for the second week, the uh, doctrine of the atonement. Uh, how it is that Jesus' death on the cross um, atoned for our sin, brought us back into relationship with uh, with God. We talked about the definition of the atonement. We saw that it came from the English word at one meant uh, how two estranged parties, God and man, have been brought back together uh, by the work of Jesus uh, Christ. We saw Grudem's definition. The atonement is the work that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. We also talked about the cause of the atonement, two key attributes of God, uh, his love and his justice, both of them essential to understanding God's motive. We talked about on the back of page two there various aspects or understandings of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Uh, so I, I think that's just a helpful reference that I've had for a number of years that show all of the different ways that we tend to think of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, concerning God's love and justice, on uh, top of page two of your outline uh, is that uh, the cross of Jesus Christ was a demonstration uh, of both the love and the justice of God. It says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while uh, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what do you learn about the love of God from the cross of Jesus Christ? How does how does the cross of Christ demonstrate the love of God? Since this is a small group Bible study, you know, how does love small group Bible studies like this one? How does it? Okay, all right. It's a measure of the love of of Christ. Also, you see something of the unconditional nature of the love of Christ in Romans five eight. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You have to understand. The word sinners means infinitely more to God than it does to us. You know, I often think if this is how this individual looks to me, how do you think I look to God? You know, whatever this individual is, there might be something uh, repulsive about a certain person concerning their sin or their whole approach. You know, you, you hear about these looters down in, uh, in New Orleans that are taking advantage of this storm. And you have to think, what has to go through somebody's mind that they would be willing to take advantage of a tragedy like this to run off with a TV set or something like that? I mean, what, what, what's going on in somebody's heart that they would even do that? But then I have to just turn it around back on myself and say, what do I look like to God apart from Jesus Christ? And I, I know that we're different now that we've been forgiven by the blood of Christ, but I'm just meaning apart from the work of Christ, apart from this thing that we're studying here. Apart from the atoning work of Jesus, what do we look like to God whose eyes are too holy and pure to even look on evil? So I think it's good for us to realize while we were still sinners means so much more to God than it does to us. To us, sin is no big deal. We tend to minimize it. We use minimizing language like fibbing or white lie instead of lies, you know, or snitching instead of stealing, you know, these kind of things. We minimize sin, but God doesn't. And so it's a big thing, demonstration of his love. But it's also a demonstration of his justice. And this is a major, major issue. Romans 3, 25 and 26. God presented Christ, him, as a sacrifice of atonement. Propitiation is a better translation there. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Very, very important passage, Romans 3, 25 and 26. The idea of Romans 3's demonstration of justice is this. The biggest problem with accepting Old Testament saints into heaven before Jesus died for them or for their sins, it seems that God had turned a blind eye to their wickedness and did nothing about it. It therefore made God seem somehow unjust when after committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband uh, Uriah, the guilty David was told by God through Nathan the prophet, you will not die, God has taken away your sins. You could just stop a moment and say, what happened there? What happened to God's justice? How can that possibly be just? 
Clearly, the law of Moses required that he die at least on two counts, blood guilt and adultery. But he did not die. And you would think now, you know, and someone once put it this way, imagine if you were Uriah's parents at David's trial. Wouldn't you just feel like they they would erupt in a sense of outrage? You've seen these kind of things where somebody gets acquitted on a technicality and the parents of the victim are so outraged. Well, think about it from that way. There's a sense in which God's justice is open to being impugned if David's up there enjoying eternal bliss at God's right hand. How can that be? Well, let me tell you something. Whatever instinct you have for justice and righteousness on that point is nothing compared to God's instinct for justice. He knows full well that David's sin had to be atoned for. But he also knew that in that all of history lies open before him, the past as well as the future and the present, it's all instantly in front of him. But he knows that's not the way it is for us. And therefore, David, you know, committing his sin a thousand years before Jesus died, there's a thousand years of questioning about God's justice. And he had to deal with that. And so he put up with any questioning there might be concerning David's sin for a thousand years until he could demonstrate his justice at the cross. That's the idea of Romans 3, 25 and 26. Because in his forbearance, God's forbearance, he had left unpunished the sins committed beforehand. What are the sins committed beforehand but the sins of Old Testament saints that are somehow atoned for so that they're in the presence of God? Didn't Elijah and Moses commit sins? And didn't they appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? How do we account for that? Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. And yet there they are in glory in some sense. It's a strange thing. And so therefore there is this sense of injustice with God. Well, God was acutely aware of how that looked. And so therefore at least part of what was going on at the cross was a display of God's justice, not merely a display of his love. So we have both, don't we? Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love. Romans 3, 25, God demonstrates his justice, both of them on display. And we do no uh, service to the cross of Christ to emphasize the one at the expense of the other. We don't want to be focusing so much on the love of God at, at the cross that we really don't have a category of dealing with this idea of justice. Neither do we want to so emphasize the justice that we forget that it was a display of his love in that he poured out the wrath on his own son. So both of them are there. And they're so important to keep together, aren't they? And it's interesting how God says, in order that he may be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. In other words, apart from the atoning sacrifice, it seems, the implication is, it would have been unjust for God to accept David and other sinners, and us for that matter, right? Unjust, because his law required death. The wages of sin is death. And it was never paid. And so how can, how can God then be called just? So in order that he might be both just and the one who justifies sinners, Jesus had to die. That's the idea there. It's a display, therefore, of the love and the justice of God. Now, why was the, why was the atonement necessary? Well, you, you know, <laughs> don't you? Every day you know because of sin, because of our sins. That is why the atonement was necessary. And the thing we have to ask is, was there any other way for God to save human beings than by sending his son to die in our place? Well, first of all, we have to understand, we're asking the question uh, uh, concerning the necessity of the atonement. Now, the point that Wayne Grudem makes early on is let's take a moment here and realize that human salvation was not necessary at all. You understand that, don't you? I know we, we don't think this way, but God didn't owe it to anybody to save anybody. He didn't save any demons. And he didn't have to save any who, who made a covenant with, the, with Satan and demons to, to rebel against God. He didn't have to uh, save anybody. And it's so important for us to meditate on this. Uh, we think somehow that God owes the human race something. Uh, he doesn't owe us anything. Um, and so therefore, God did not have to save a single human being. There was no salvation possible for the devil and his angels. Revelation 12, 12 uh, says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. All right? Uh, this is something we have to keep in mind. The devil knows full well where he's heading. Remember also what Jesus says uh, in Matthew 25 in the uh, sheep and the goats analogy. 
uh, it's not a parable, but he's just saying when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he'll separate the people as a shepherd separates the, pe- uh, the sheep from the goats. That's all. It's not a parable. He's just saying it's a simile. It, you know, it's like or as the way that, that the, separ- the, the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's what he's going to do. He'll put the sheep in his right and the goats in his left. But what he's going to say to those on his left, the goats, he's going to say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell was made for the devil and his angels, what we call demons. There's no salvation available for them. For it says in, uh, in Hebrews 2.16, for surely it is not angels he helps, but the descendants of Abraham. He doesn't help any angels. What angels would need this kind of help but fallen angels, Right. So he doesn't help any of them. There's no salvation available for them. Or it says in another place, 2 Peter 2, 4, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, put the, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. The word hell there is not a good translation. It's really just um, the abyss, uh, a holding place. I don't take this to be the lake of fire. Uh, none of the, I, I, My understanding of eschatologically is that there's no one in the lake of fire yet, that that's yet to come. But there is this holding place, and my feeling is they're in Tartarus, I think is the word. Uh, they're being held in a pit. And, uh, you know, some hypothesize who they were. Maybe it had something to do with uh, before the flood and all kinds of other things that Peter says. Long story short, though, is he doesn't spare angels when they sin. And the angels that sin are called the demons. Long story short, there is no salvation there's no atoning sacrifice there's no salvation available for the devil and his angels that should make us think and understand there didn't need to be any salvation for us either he doesn't owe it to a single human being he doesn't owe it to the human race but he has chosen to do it and that's something that we need to consider and once god has promised it we would not use the language he owes it but god will be faithful to his promise He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and those who come to me, I will never drive away. Anyone who looks to the Son has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. These are promises he's made. And once he's made those promises, his character is behind the fulfillment of them. You understand that. But I'm just saying, before having made those promises, he didn't have to make them. That's all I'm saying. He's not obligated to us. Okay? God's decision to save some, therefore, was perfectly free and unconstrained. There was nothing inside man that compelled God to save us. Uh, This was a commitment he made completely on his own. But having thus decided, was Christ's death the only way? Was there some other way to save us? Well, first of all, we need to understand there is no resource within us. I mean, if God's thinking of other ways whereby we can be saved, He's looked out over the mass of humanity and all of human history besides and finds nothing there. You understand that. He looks out and there's no resources there for the salvation of the human race. Uh, You look at Isaiah 59 in verses 3 through 17. I've quoted the, the whole thing here for you. Let me just read it. This is God's assessment of the human race. He says, Your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. Uh, They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. So justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were daylight or twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look look for justice, but find none for deliverance. But it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Now listen to this. That's that's a pretty bleak assessment of the human race. 
Uh, you know that Paul quotes a lot of this in Romans 3. But look at this right here. Verse 15, truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. Do you see that? What what does it say there when it says he looked and saw that there was no one? What is he talking about there? What's he looking at? He's looking at the human race and not just one segment of it, not just the Jews and not just one era or one generation. He's looking at it all. All the people that ever would be born, all of us. He's looking right through us and he's finding no one. You understand? There is no savior among the human race unless he works it. And so it says, he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. And one could say he was born of a virgin and came to earth to save us. I mean, that's what he did. He came down to earth because we could not save ourselves. All right, also in Galatians 2.21, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. There's no way we could have saved ourselves. And even if we somehow could have saved ourselves individually, which we couldn't, we certainly couldn't have saved our neighbor, never mind the mass of human sinners. Uh, there is no human savior apart from uh, this, the incarnation. All right, so was it necessary for Christ well, certainly, let's put it this way, there was no other human resource. Yes, go ahead. There are some aspects of it. For example, the paying of bail. Um, you know, it's money paid to get somebody out of, out of prison before they stand trial. Usually the individual doesn't pay themselves. Usually the family does, or perhaps a wealthy person will put up some bond for them. So there's actually parallels. And frankly, I think they're both elements of what God, what we're dealing with here. The soul who sins is the one who will die, it says in Ezekiel. And so we are individually accountable. And so we can't transfer in one sense from human to human. So there, what you're saying is true and, and there are certain aspects of child rearing and, and of justice where no, we can't. If somebody commits a murder, no other person is going to be able to take that. It would be unjust. And I think it's because of the uniqueness of God and what he can do and we can't. You see, we cannot remove the guilt from the murder and put the guilt on another murder. And because we can't transfer guilt, but God can, but because we can't transfer guilt, then it's unjust to have a substitute come in the place of a murderer and die for him. It really is unjust. And therefore, that's actually a very important idea when you come to the atonement. Jesus must in some sense be guilty or it's the greatest injustice there ever has been. He's the purest, most innocent man that ever lived. And look what he's, look what he's suffering. And all the more when you see later on in, in this study tonight what he went through. You'd think this is a grave injustice if guilt cannot actually be transferred. I think the reason we don't have a direct parallel is this is something really only God can do. Just like the, they said to Jesus, no one can forgive sins but God alone. We could also say, no one can transfer guilt but God alone. He's the only one who can do it. That's a very good question. Thank you for asking. All right, now Gruden brings up this idea of consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. What does he mean by that? Well, the basic idea is once God determined to save sinners and knew that sinners could never save themselves, then Christ's death in our place was necessary. That's what he's saying. Having ac- accepted those two premises that he's going to save sinners and that no sinner can save themselves by any means, then there must be, therefore, the atonement, uh, the incarnation and the atonement because this, the salvation had to be by a human being. Uh, this is the whole logic of Hebrews 2, that he had to become flesh and blood in order to save us. So, yes, in that sense, then, it was necessary. Now, you might say, well, God's creative. He could have come up with a thousand different ways to save us. <laughs> well, I suppose. I, I don't know what they would be. When you start thinking of the parameters that God set up in his universe, 
where you've got the law and we violated the law and the penalty is, is death and all, it starts to lead to the cross. Do you see that? Once you start to accept the universe that we're working with and, you, and if you can come up with another alternate universe in your mind, then you're a science fiction fiction writer. I don't know what else you are, but uh, it doesn't exist. That universe doesn't exist. The one we are working with uh, it leads to the cross. Do you see that? It leads eventually to substitutionary atonement or we don't, we're not saved. So anyway, consequent absolute necessity. The atonement then came as a consequence of God's desire to save some. Uh, necessity language uh, is there in several verses. Jesus speaks this way. Uh, for example, in Matthew 26, 39 through 42, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Now, as you look at Jesus' words in Gethsemane, the conclusion we have to come to is it's not possible for him not to drink that cup. He must drink it. It's the only way. Uh, you have the same language here uh, that we've quoted many times concerning Peter. Matthew 26, then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Now, what does that language say to you? It must happen in this way. We're saying, well, now that the scriptures have been written that way, then it must happen. Yes, but it was God who inspired those scriptures. There's a certain contingent necessity here. Once the promises, the prophecies have been given, that's the way it had to happen. But even the prophecies were given because before that, God willed and determined to save sinners and we could not save ourselves. So he uses this kind of language. And then Jesus himself says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember, Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? There's a necessity language. It had to be this way. There was no other way. Okay? Romans 3, as described above, showed the necessity of Christ dying to prove God's righteousness. And then Hebrews 2.17, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, what I would say to you is there are lots of creative people always thinking of different ways God could have done it than the way he did it. And many of them are called heretics, okay? And we'll be discussing some of their theories of the atonement and the views of what Jesus did. But we're going to show that they just don't line up with Scripture. They don't line up with what God said Jesus accomplished at the cross. They're thinking always creatively about what really happened at the cross. I think in the end you're going to find that there really is no other way to understand Jesus' death on the cross than substitutionary atonement. That is that Jesus paid the penalty for sin having received guilt on himself. I don't, I don't think there's any other way to understand it. Everything else leads into, into problems. Okay? From these and other verses, we can come to this conclusion that it was impossible for God to save us any other way, to con- consider the infinitely high value of his only begotten son and the infinitely painful way of salvation he made through his own body and blood If there had been another way, it is not irreverent to think that God would have chosen it. All right? I think that that's what we come to, is that this is the way it had to be. Now, I'm not slighting God's wisdom like he couldn't find another way if he'd just been smart enough. It's like saying, is God so powerful he can make a stone that even he couldn't lift? Uh, I think we don't want to take the wisdom of God and double it back on, on itself. The Bible actually says that the cross of Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Even though it seems like foolishness, it is the wisdom of God, and that's what we must accept, okay? All right, now what is the atonement, the nature of the atonement? Uh, Grudem's going to break it down into the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. Active obedience would be what Jesus did up until the cross, and then passive obedience, uh, what he did in suffering at the cross. Uh, The words active and passive, you know, there's this sense in which Jesus at the cross is still active, but really it seems that those things are being done to him, and that's why it uses this language. If that language isn't helpful to you, all right. But what we're talking about is the life that Jesus lived up to the time of his arrest and then what happened from his arrest until he said it is finished and died. 
And that's that. Uh, what Grudem is doing is he's saying all of that together is the atonement. That's the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So let's start with this idea of active obedience, namely Christ's obedience for us. The active obedience of Jesus Christ was necessary. Uh, top of page five in your notes, it says, if Christ had only earned forgiveness of sins for us, then we would not merit heaven. Our guilt would have been removed, but we would simply be in the position of Adam and Eve before they had done anything good or bad and before they had passed the time of probation successfully. They would be, to some degree, morally neutral. We would have no active righteousness. We'd have nothing to show for ourselves. Nothing. And so, therefore, there is a negative and a positive aspect of Jesus' atoning work, you see. Negatively, he has to remove the penalty for our guilt, right? He's got to deal with what we deserve for our sin. Positively, he has to give us a, a righteousness so that the statement he makes, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Where's that shining come from? Where do we get any righteousness? And then you think about, for example, the statement that is made in the parable about the wedding uh, feast. You remember how the wedding banquet is filled with guests. Everybody's there. And then the, uh, the master of the banquet comes in and finds a man there without wedding clothes. Remember? And says, friend, how'd you get in here? And the man is speechless. And then the, the uh, king says, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside in the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Boy, that's a tough wedding. I mean, if you're not dressed well, you get thrown to hell. Um, well, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I think the meaning is if you don't have active righteousness, you're not going to be in heaven. Well, where then does that active righteousness come from? Well, I think it comes from Jesus. He gives it to us as a gift. And therefore, first he has to, he has to live it. He has to live a righteous life. And so he did. This is the act of righteousness of Jesus. Christ lived a perfect, a life of perfect obedience to the law of God on our behalf. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive full rights of sons. So Jesus lived under the law. He lived under the law of Moses. And in so doing, in fulfilling every jot and tittle, so to speak, every small command, every great command, he wove a garment of righteousness for us. Through every act of obedience, there's like a fiber of righteousness in our garment. And we get to stand in it. That becomes our positive righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? Every time Jesus resisted temptation and said, no, that's my righteousness right there. Because I didn't do it. And you know, we did not do it. We did not resist temptation. We did not stand firm. Not, not like Jesus. Loving God perfectly. Loving neighbor perfectly. We did not do that. But Jesus did. And isn't that beautiful to think of those 30 plus years of perfect obedience and righteousness. That becomes our salvation. That's what we stand in. Uh, his perfect obedience. Christ's physical life was focused on achieving a perfect righteousness. Remember what Jesus said to John the Baptist? And John is shocked when he sees the Son of God there. And uh, he says in John's gospel, he said, I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize told me who it would be. But uh, here, here John comes and, the, and the, he sees the Spirit descend on him like a dove and he knows that it's Jesus. And the, the Father speaks to him and testifies, this is the one. Well, when he realizes that, this is the one about whom he had said, I'm not worthy to untie his, his sandals. Remember how I talked on on Sunday about the whole thing about beautiful feet, but that feet are considered really the lowest and dirtiest part of the body and generally the slaves, the servants will give you water to wash your own feet. Thank you very much. I mean, that's beneath even a slave to be washing somebody's feet. Well, what is John the Baptist saying? I don't deserve to touch his feet. And uh, it was true, really. John understood how great Jesus was. And he says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And he said, let it be so now. We must fulfill all righteousness. And that's Jesus' mindset. We must fulfill all righteousness. Why? Why do we have to fulfill all righteousness? Why did Jesus have to? So that you and I would have a righteousness we could stand in on judgment day. And his baptism was part of that. If we don't fully understand why it was, then we can ruminate on it and think why. But Jesus thought it was. We must fulfill all righteousness, he said. And this righteousness that God, uh, this is the righteousness that God ascribes to our account in justification. Romans 4, 3, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, this is the way I look at it. Our faith opens up the account for the electronic transfer of funds. But the funds are Jesus's. You understand what I'm saying? When we by faith open up 
and, and give the electronic connection so the funds can be transferred into our account, that doesn't make any funds th there if they're not available. But there are funds available. There is a, an active righteousness available and there is a will to transfer it to our account. That's justification. And so by faith, we op our hearts are open and the righteousness gets credited to us. And where did that righteousness come from? It came from the perfect life of Jesus. The active obedience of Jesus Christ becomes our righteousness. Uh, many verses speak of Christ's righteousness as our own, Philippians 3, 8, and 9. What is more, said uh, Paul, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. It says also in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, listen, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. A Christian says, Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my holiness. Christ is my redemption. That's what we say. We don't say, I have my own holiness. I have my... Paul said, that's rubbish. He rejected not having a righteousness of my own, he says, that comes from the law. Not even now, friends. Not even on your best Christian day. Not even led by the Spirit do you have a righteousness you want to stand in on Judgment Day. Can anybody testify to that? Do you want to stand on your best day on Judgment Day? I sure don't. I want a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want Jesus' righteousness because that will stand the perfect scrutiny of God. God is very detail-oriented, you know. He's got a very fine eye for perfection and righteousness. And you must be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect or you will not stand that day. So therefore, we must have this perfect righteousness given to us and it's available. Christ, our righteousness. That's what 1 Corinthians 1.30 says. He is our righteousness. And thank God for it. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to be righteous in our lives and to obey and to follow, but that's for different reasons. That's so that we will bear fruit that will last and give honor and glory to his name, but it's not the basis of our standing on judgment day, not at all. All right. And then Romans 5:19, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Do you see the link of our righteousness to Jesus' obedience? Now, you might say, well, isn't that just the obedience on the cross? Well, I think that's primarily in Paul's mind there but I think we could extend it to all of his obedience. Didn't Jesus say, I always do what pleases him? Why would he tell us that? Why is that important for us to know that he always does what pleases him? Well, one thing that he's not disqualified to die for us, but also so that we would know that's the nature of his righteousness. I always do what pleases him. Okay, and then 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be uh, sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great transfer that we're talking about, the transfer of guilt, which we cannot do, but God did. He made Christ sin for us. So in, that, in, a, in a very amazing sense, Jesus was guilty on the cross, not because he had committed any sin. He didn't. The scripture is very clear about that. Though he had committed no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Very clear that he hadn't done anything, but he was made in some sense guilty. He was made in some sense sin for us. So that then when the wrath of God comes pouring down on him, it's not an act of grave injustice. But actually, it's, it is just what's going on there. Okay? Now, let's talk about Christ's suffering for us. And here is what we tend to think of a little bit more when you think of the atonement. And that is you think about his suffering. You think about his death on the cross. Uh, Jesus really was suffering his whole life, wasn't he? I mean, we stop and think about it. It's just amazing the burden he staggered under every day. It's just astonishing, isn't it? And I think it bears meditation to think about a whole life of suffering. In a broad sense, frankly, any suffering that Christ endured in his life was part of his suffering for our sin. Think about it. Any, any hard thing that came to him, any suffering he endured at all, isn't that part of, of his being our substitute? Because what suffering did he deserve for himself? None. So therefore, it's all part of his atoning work. Any suffering. We should think about that. These sufferings were lifelong and intense and they culminated in the cross. We should meditate, therefore, on all the sufferings that are listed below with a simple thought. Think this way. I deserved what he endured. Think about that. I deserved what he endured. That was my suffering he was going through. That was for me. For example, Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Think about what it was like to be despised and rejected. Now, all of us have tasted that to some degree. But Jesus was a thoroughly hated person. 
Uh, he said to his opponents, he said, you're trying to kill me, a man who's told you the truth I heard from God. He knew that they hated him. He knew that they wanted to kill him. And so that's on his mind all the time. Uh, it says in, uh, it's not listed here. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, Hebrews 12:3, a few verses down. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Every day he got up knowing he would be opposed that day. People would come and watch him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Then they'd point the finger and yell at him. I mean, imagine what a day like that would be like. Think, boy, I would love to, to be able to have Jesus' power and be able to do his miracles and all that. Don't think wrongly about what it was like to walk under the shadow of the cross those years. It's, a, it's an amazing burden. And every day, consider him, it says, meditate on him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. Uh, it says in uh, Matthew, going back up a little higher, Matthew 4, 2 and 3, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Well, coupled with that, Hebrews 2.18 says, he himself suffered when he was tempted. So he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered under temptation. Isn't that amazing? Jesus' sufferings are long before the cross. He suffered every time he was tempted. All right. Uh, and then there's this. There's some insights into Jesus' psychology, if you can use that word reverently. Uh, Jesus had a mentality. But think in Luke 12.50 when he says, I, am, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. That word distressed is translated in the KJV, straightened. As usual, the King James Version tends to be more literalistic and therefore more accurate to the kind of literal sense of the word. The sense of that Greek word is, it's like I'm in a straitjacket and I cannot move until it's done. I mean, think about what that's like every day to be under that burden. This is Jesus giving us a little glimpse in Luke 12:50 into what it was like to walk under the shadow of the cross every day. I have a baptism to undergo and it's like I'm in a straitjacket until it's over. And remember what it says that he endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy that was set before him. So he's got the joy in his mind. He's got to keep his eyes on that prize, the joy that's set before him. But every day he's, he's got this crushing burden of the cross that's coming. He knew what it was about. And then John 12, 27, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for, for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then the voice speaks, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. What an incredible exchange and how deep is that exchange there? But he says, he says, and now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is why I came. But, but don't pass over the first part. Now my heart is troubled. Why was his heart troubled? Because of the burden of the cross. It's a terrible thing that he walked under every day of his life. And then, of course, we've talked about it before. I'm not going to go into details, but Luke 22:44. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Have you ever prayed so hard you could just feel your, your face getting hot and red? I mean, you're just so intense. We were reading uh, last night in our family about, about Ezra who found out about the intermarriage after they came back, Remember? And he was so upset, he was pulling his hair out of his beard and out of his, I mean, pulling it out by the roots. You have to imagine what kind of intensity he's going through. Well, I think it's small compared to Gethsemane. You know, he's pulling out. Now, Nehemiah pulled other people's hair out. I mean, you read that same thing. He, that's Nehemiah and Ezra, two different approaches. All right. Ezra pulled his own hair out. Nehemiah pulled their hair out. But either way, God, and then Nehemiah said, remember me for what I've done for you, God. He didn't feel guilty about it at all. I'll do it again if I need to. You know, but uh, just two different approaches. But I'm just focusing now on Ezra and think of the intensity that would cause him to pull his beard hair out. Those of you that, it, I mean, it would, I mean, that's intense pain, but he's not even thinking about that. He's thinking about the fact that after all of this, after, after all this, after Nebuchadnezzar, after the burning of the temple, after the exile, 70 years, we have a little glimmer of restoration and look what's happening again. It's just over. It's unbelievable how deep and strong is sin. Only Jesus can save us. It's that strong. I mean, as soon as we have a little opening, we start to sin again. That's just the way it is. And Ezra's like, what can save us? And he's like this, you know, and nothing's even happened yet. It's not like God's threatened anything, but he knows what the law of God says. There's an intensity there. But Jesus is feeling intense there. And I've said before that I think it's that God 
revealed what the cross would be like at a deeper level. That's why he was astonished in Mark's gospel. When he goes to Gethsemane, it's like, you've known, but now you will know what it will be like. And he just took the, and it was like on level three, he went up to level nine. This is what it's going to be like. Will you still do it? And so, I mean, there's blood coming out of his face when he thinks about, just considers what it will be like. And you think about that and you say, wow, what incredible courage to get up from that and say, I'll do it. Yet not as I will, but as you will. That's the courage it took to save you. That's what Jesus did. There's no one else even close. No one has had that kind of courage. I don't care about all the Medal of Honor winners. Put them all together. Nobody's even close. Jesus got up and walked out and said, who are, me, who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. Let's go. And, and he's ready to go die. The courage of Jesus. It's amazing. And then uh, as we continue to consider the sufferings of Jesus, Matthew 26, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Uh, he is worthy of death, they, they answered. Then they spit in his face. Has that ever happened to you? I don't mean just somebody who is very moist when they're talking. I mean somebody spitting in your face. That is a, that is a very, that's, that's one of the most disgusting and rejecting things anybody can do to, to any human being. It's really, it's, it's just total disdain for another person's humanity. And they're spitting in Jesus' face. They're spitting in God's face. Think about it that way. I mean, Jesus was God and they're spitting in his face. And they struck him with their fists. You have to wonder, now think about it. What did he do? Why the rage? Why this abuse? This is, un, un, this is not normal. This is not the way prisoners were normally dealt with. But they just hated him. And then they said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? And then in front of um, Pilate in John 18:40, they shouted, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. What are the significance of those words? Not him. They rejected him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him, it says in John 1. They rejected him. And give us Barabbas? Who is he? He's, I don't mean to, to, to speak disparagingly of a human being, but he's riffraff is what he is. And they chose Barabbas over Jesus. I mean, that's just the human mind, but this is all part of the suffering of Jesus. And then uh, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Some of you saw the, the movie uh, done by Mel Gibson on that, but uh, I don't know how horrible that would have been. Sometimes it's fatal. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Another account says they took a rod and smashed him on the head after the crown of thorns was in there, digging those long thorns into his scalp. Um, I don't know. And I think about that. Remember what I said before we considered all of this suffering and abuse. I deserve this. That's God's statement. Because he was our substitute, right? He was our sin bearer. So any abuse, any suffering, that was his substitutionary role. And you say, well, I must underestimate sin then. Well, yeah, that's it. We underestimate it. We underestimate how God thinks of it and how seriously he would deal with it. But when you look at the picture of what Jesus went through, that's his assessment of what we deserved and worse. All of this is less than hell, isn't it? All of the things I've described here are less than, than hell, the lake of fire. Of course, Jesus will drink hell too. We'll get to that in a minute. But what I'm saying, all of these, these things are part of the rejection that we deserve for, for being sinners. Okay, so that's all leading up to it. That's uh, his suffering for his whole life. Now we get to the pain of the cross. First of all, there's physical pain and death. Uh, he died by crucifixion. I mean, he didn't die by a lance being thrown through his heart. I know that they stuck a lance in to see that he was dead, but that's not what killed him. It was crucifixion that killed him. It says in Mark 15:24, and they crucified him. Now, Grudem said, we need not hold that Jesus suffered more physical pain than any human being that ever lived, for the Bible nowhere makes that claim. We would not say that, all right? It was terrible physical pain. Uh, I think that the human mind can conceive of ways of torturing people that are worse than crucifixion. Uh, I don't want to speak them here, but we have that kind of diabolical skill to think of ways to study pain and to intensify it. However, having said that, Death by crucifixion remains one of the most horrible deaths ever devised by man. It really is a terrible way to die. Grudem has this description. A criminal who was crucified was essentially forced to inflict upon himself a very slow death by suffocation. When the criminal's arms were outstretched and fastened by nails to the cross, he had to support most of the weight of his body with his arms. 
the chest cavity would be pulled upward and outward, making it difficult to exhale in order to draw in a fresh breath. But when the victim's longing for oxygen became unbearable, he would have to push himself up with his feet, thus giving a more natural support to his body. But it was extremely painful because it required putting the body weight on the nails holding the feet and bending the elbows and pulling upward on the nails driven through the wrists. The criminal's back, which had been torn open repeatedly by, by a previous flogging, would scrape against the wooden cross with each breath. That's every time you want to breathe. But imagine, I mean, usually death by crucifixion took um, a day or two, maybe three days. So you're going through this over and over and over and over for every breath. You say, well, Jesus was only on the cross for three hours. Think about that. Three hours, every breath, three hours. You know how time, time's not, it's not static. It just changes. It depends what you're doing. I wonder what three hours would feel like. You know, they, they, they talk about what, what it's like on a battlefield where there's death and destruction all around and the whole thing was 11 minutes, but it seemed like seven years. You know, I mean, and what I think is what would it be like to go through this physically for three hours? So there that was. This, sometimes this horrible dance of death would last several days until at last the executioners would break the criminal's legs, preventing him from breathing. So that ended it. And that's exactly what happened to the, the thieves that died with Jesus, but it didn't happen to Jesus for the primary reason that God said, no, not a bone will be broken. It was a prediction that was made, and so Jesus died before they would smash his bones. Secondly, there was the pain of bearing sin. Now, this was more awful than the physical pain. It was a psychological pain of bearing the guilt of our sin. I, I had read in one of John MacArthur's commentaries, this is one of the most despicable stories I've ever read, about an a- alcoholic man whose drinking had resulted in his daughter's death because he drank the only money uh, they had for her medicine. This is in the 19th century. The neighbors took up an offering to buy the destitute little girl a pretty little burial dress. The night before the funeral, the drunken father broke in and stole the dress off the body of his dead daughter and sold it for liquor. Now, that's just one man's single sin, okay? How guilty. Let's say that man eventually came to Christ and began thinking about his life. How guilty do you think he'd feel about that night? That if he could do it over again, he wouldn't have drunk her medicine money, but at least that she would have a pretty dress to be buried in. That's just one sin. Jesus took our guilt, all of it, on himself, in himself, you know? Um, Imagine how guilty every adulterer or murderer or drunkard ever felt for their sins once their consciences were softened enough to realize what they'd done. Imagine that guilt multiplied across a whole lifetime, not a single event, but one sinner's entire, all their guilt. One sinner now, 75, 80 years of sin. And then... Imagine that guilt multiplied again by the following number mentioned in Revelation 7. After this I looked, and there before me, listen, was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now let me ask you a question. What happened to their guilt, those people? What happened to the great multitude that no one could count? The guilt of all their sins. For the years and years they lived on earth. What happened to the guilt? Did not God take it up and put it onto his own son? And therefore, the physical pain is small compared to the guilt that Jesus took in himself for our sin. A great multitude that no one could count. Imagine how much guilt they accrued for all their lifetime of sinning. Imagine all that horrible, searing, wretched, inky black guilt amassed in a filthy, seething pile and poured into Jesus' heart, into his conscience. It's horrible, isn't it? Just to be defiled like that with sin. Remember how much Jesus, the Holy One, hates sin and he bore our sins in his body. Grudem wrote this, Jesus was perfectly holy. He hated sin with his entire being. The thought of evil, of sin, contradicted everything in his character. Yet in obedience to the Father and out of love for us, Jesus took on himself all the sins of those who would someday be saved. Taking on himself all the evil against which his soul rebelled, created deep revulsion in the center of his being. All that he hated most deeply was poured out fully upon him. Supporting scriptures, Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This isn't just theory. This is what Isaiah says happened. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. What do those words mean? To be sin for us. 
so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Our sins were imputed to Christ the way Adam's sin was imputed to us. This was not unfair to Christ for He voluntarily chose to do it at Gethsemane and before. He knew before He entered the world why He come, why He'd come and He knew in Gethsemane what it would be like in His humanness and He did it. So it's not unfair. Jesus knew what He was doing. Uh, this is what was going on in Gethsemane as it went on before the foundation of the world. That's second. So first you have the physical suffering of crucifixion itself. Second, you have the guilt of sin poured into him. Third, you have this sense of abandonment. Christ had an immense and profound sense of loneliness in this. Someone once called him the loneliest man that ever lived because there's really nobody who could understand what he was going through. I mean, nobody could understand what it was like to walk under the shadow of the cross every day. There was really nobody who could fully grasp that. His own disciples frequently had no idea what he was doing. The fact that Peter's reaching for his sword to try to prevent his arrest, doesn't that show you something? This was his prized disciple, the leader of the disciples. He had no idea what was happening after all those years of training. He had already told them that Christ had to suffer and die. He told them that on the Mount of Transfiguration. They didn't understand what rising from the dead meant, remember? They, had, they just couldn't, it's just like they couldn't get it. And so they didn't understand. Jesus was a, a lonely person and it's reflected in Gethsemane when in Matthew 26, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now let's not forget the humanness of Jesus. He's looking for some companionship. He doesn't want to be alone. Of course, they failed him that night. They all fell asleep. Remember how he woke them and said, couldn't you watch with me for one hour? And then he began thinking about them, watch and pray so that you would not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. But at any rate, you see the loneliness of Jesus. He's alone. The feeling of aloneness was heightened when they fell asleep, as I mentioned. and was greatly intensified when moments later, all of them abandoned him. They all ran away. Now you might think, well, it's a good thing. And Jesus had actually orchestrated that they would get away. If you're looking for me, he says in John 18, then let these go. Why? Because they need to go because they're not ready to face it and it's not part of God's plan. Later on, they'll die as martyrs, not tonight. And so they had to go. He wanted them to go, but still there was a human side to it. Think about it. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 31, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. That's what he calls it, falling away. You will all fall away on account of me. Uh, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So you look at it and what kind of loyalty had Jesus engendered in his closest followers after three years of incredible ministry? That much. And you say, well, Peter, he kind of followed Jesus. Yeah, but look how it turned out. I mean, look at what he did in the end. Jesus was totally alone as he faced these accusations, as he was spit upon and slapped. There was no one there. He had some followers in the Sanhedrin. Remember Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, but they hadn't declared themselves. They were terrified. He was alone. He faced it alone. His disciples all deserted him and, and Fled. Look what he says in John 16:32, top of page 9. A time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. Listen to this. You will leave me all alone. There it is. The abandonment of Jesus. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, Jesus was alone humanly. There was no one with him to help him. Well, this came to an agonizing head when the Father, in some mysterious way, also abandoned him relationally on the cross. I have to couch these terms because you know that the Trinity never stops being the Trinity. But there is some significance to Jesus' statement, which is transliterated for us from the Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why do you think the Greek transliterates the Aramaic? Could it be that it's important what's being said at that moment? Important for so many reasons because he's quoting Psalm 22.1, which is the clearest prediction of crucifixion in the Old Testament. But there's more going on than just that. It's more than just Hey, everybody, read Psalm 22. It's all written there. No, it was from the core of his being. He's calling out, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so there is Jesus abandoned in some sense, forsaken on the, on the cross. You know, this was a converting uh, concept for Martin Luther. He had been wrestling with his own wickedness and his own sin. He felt abandoned by God and forsaken. He felt guilty. And it was when he read Psalm 22, verse 1. And he said, that's the way I feel, but that's what Jesus said. Now, why would Jesus feel the way I do? He was pure. He was holy. But it's when he considered that Jesus was our sin bearer and our substitute that he understood what was happening at the cross. 
So, when Jesus says those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's totally alone, humanly. I know there are women at the foot of the cross, but I've shown the abandonment he had. What must that have felt like? On top of the physical pain of crucifixion, on top of bearing all of that wicked guilt. But that's not all, is it? There's one more thing, and that's the cup that he drank, and that is the cup of God's wrath. That's the significance of the word propitiation, which the ESV gives us, the NAS gives us, the NIV gives us sacrifice of atonement. But the fact is he drank the wrath of God against us for our sin so that we might be free from condemnation. Basically, in my opinion, he experienced hell on the cross. He experienced what that's like to have the wrath of God poured down on him for those three hours uh, in our place as our substitute. And so it's far more difficult than any of these torments already listed. This is the active wrath of God against the elect for all of their sins, past, present, and future. Grudem put it this way, as Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone, God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Now, the key word is propitiation, Romans 3:23, and following, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness or justice because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And then Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in, in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, some people advocate you shouldn't use fancy or big, heavy theological words. I think it's actually good to use a word that nobody really knows and that everybody has to look up because it's such an extraordinary concept. There's nothing else like it. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God. That's what the word means. And if it makes people stop and say, hey, what's that? Good. Because we need to stop and say, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that Jesus took God's wrath against us for our sin. Does God have a passionate response to evil? Does he not have a passionate response? Is he not a passionate being? Does he not have an active anger and wrath against sin? Now, some would say, no, our God is a loving God. And that's why they couldn't handle the word propitiation. They didn't like it. They used the word expiation instead, cleansing, because they don't like the idea that God has an act of wrath. But how then do you explain Noah's flood? How do you explain Sodom and Gomorrah? How do you explain Dathan and Abiram and, and the earth opening up and swallowing people? And how do you explain, oh, so many things. And, and the future, the book of Revelation, a third of all mankind died from the plagues. How do you understand that except by the wrath of God? That's what Jesus drank for us on the cross. And it says in Isaiah 53.10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life uh, like a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Well, I'm not going to get into the debate on propitiation right now. It's a little beside the point. We can talk about it, God willing, next time. But, um, you know, it's an overwhelming feeling, isn't it? To think what Jesus did for us, to think of, of the physical pain of suffering on the cross, to think about the guilt that he drank in, to think about the abandonment and the wrath of God, all of that on Jesus, that's what he did for us. That's the demonstration of love. While we're still sinners, he did that for us. That's a demonstration of the display of his justice. That's what it took to display his justice. I think that should draw from us a response of faith first as we listen and say, that's my Savior. That's my hope. That's sufficient for my sin. And not just for mine, but a billion other people. Uh, as many as God calls. It's sufficient for all of that sufficient for me and that cleanses my conscience it's the only thing that can friends it's the only thing that can atone for me and to know also before that that jesus active righteousness his whole life i will stand in that on on uh, judgment day it will be my perfect righteousness the rest of eternity that's what we have for us that's the atonement that's what we're studying here tonight let's close in prayer Father, we thank you for the things that we've learned tonight about what Jesus did for us. We thank you for his active obedience, walking all those many years through the valley of temptation, through active attack from the, from the devil 
in the garden and it says in Luke after that he left him till an opportune moment you uh, Lord Jesus stood under the constant attack of the evil one and never once did you yield never once did you betray your father never once did you throw off the constraints of the law but you walked under it perfectly and obeyed every jot and tittle and woe for us a perfect garment of righteousness that is our only hope but that's not all you dealt with our guilt our sin our abandonment our our wrath you took it on yourself so that we are free from all those things and therefore it says having been justified through faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ and therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus we thank you for these things in jesus name amen thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of god and build his kingdom only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.